Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wonder what I would do if my plane went down? (laughs) If I knew the captain comes on the loudspeaker and says, brace for impact, this plane's about to go down, would you call people or would you try to connect to your family? Would you send text messages and try to say goodbye? What would you do if you knew your plane was going down? Kind of imagine things like that pretty much all the time, Uh, especially when I'm flying, especially when I'm flying into John Wayne or landing in John Wayne. It's terrifying. You guys know what I'm talking about? You feel you're really close to the buildings as you land. The, the incline is really steep. I just feel like I'm in a fighter jet, like the pilot's just doing. Anyway, um, what would you do in a disaster situation? There was a guy who was faced with that question um, 100 years ago. He wrote on the Titanic. Um, this was the real one, not this one. Uh, he wrote on the Titanic, and his name was John Harper. John Harper was a Baptist preacher from Scotland who was on his way to Moody Bible Church in Chicago. This guy took his sister and his six-year-old daughter along with him as he, uh, I want to say, auditioned to serve at Moody Bible Church. In fact, he fully expected to be called to serve as their pastor. So this guy had chops. He was good. In case you're wondering where his wife is, she had already died. Of course, as you know, the Titanic strikes an iceberg and now is going down. First thing John Harper does is he runs and races to get his sister and his daughter on lifeboats. And then as he leaves them in the lifeboats, he says, okay, I have work to do now. And now he's going around the ship and calling women, children, and fill in the blank. Who is he calling for? Women, children, and unsaved. Unsaved. If you're not a Christian, come get on this lifeboat. Essentially, his call was, you know you're not a believer, you know you're not right with God, you need this boat. In fact, one guy scoffed at him, and, uh, and then John Harper, it was reported, took off his life vest and gave it to the man and said, you need this more than I do. John Harper was faced with a disaster situation, and he knew immediately what that implied for him. I'm going to die, that's okay, these people are not right, but I'm good to go. I wonder again for you what you would do in a disaster type situation. When it comes down to the wire, what is most important in life? What do you most need to do? I'll tell you what our most desperate need is. Our most desperate need for us is not getting a 1600 SAT score, whatever the score is now. Our most desperate need is not to get into the four-year prestigious institution. Our most desperate need is not to score a job with a six-figure salary, which would pay for the Ivy League university that you want to get into. The, uh, the, our most desperate need is not to restore climate. Uh, to restore a healthy climate. In fact, you've heard all all along now that uh, climate change is real, polarized caps are melting, the sea levels are rising, we're doomed unless we change something. That's important, right? If that's a genuine uh, reflection of science, then okay, let's do something about that. Is that our most desperate need though? No. Is our most desperate need to get the right person in the Oval Office? We need a Republican in there, a conservative fiscally. We need someone who's going to protect babies. We don't want, you know, John Doe in there, who's a Democrat, who's going to kill babies and going to make the most liberal laws in the books. We don't need that most desperately, although that is an important thing. You might also say, well, what about legislating gun laws? We just had another active shooter in Texas yesterday. It's, it's almost like to the point now where you wake up and you see or you hear about the news on, this, uh, on your Twitter feed or wherever you find it. You say, oh, that's a bummer. It happened again. Do you find yourself like me, kind of saying, man, that's why it keeps happening. Okay, that's, there's another one. You almost get callous because you hear it so often. And so you might say, man, we got to do something about this. Why can't we legislate common sense gun laws where we have background checks for everyone who gets a gun? That seems like that's something we should do. That's an important thing. But that's not our most desperate need. 
You might also think, here's, here's a scary statistic, your children and their grandchildren are still going to have debt. The national debt that we're continuing to increase, trillions of dollars worth, is going to get bigger and bigger. We're still spending more than we bring in. It doesn't take a rocket surgeon to realize that's a problem. My grandkids are going to be strapped with debt that I'm taking advantage from, right? I'm enjoying the benefits and advantages of taxes and you know, parks or whatever else I'm benefiting from uh, on the shoulders of my grandkids who are going to be strapped with the nation debt. And here's the thing. At some point, creditors can call a loan and say, you know what? You owe me way too much. It's time to pay up. I need you to pay that $300 trillion, whatever it is going to be in however many years. And we're, we're most in debt to China. So this is currently the United States of America, but it might be the United States of China in the, in the future because we owe so much money. And then I say, it's time to pay up. That's a desperate need, but it's not our most desperate need. By the way, did I mention that North Korea has nukes? Did you guys know that? North Korea, of course, it's fine because North Korea is known for being level-headed and and postured and well-reasoned in their approach to life and everything else. That's a scary scary proposition. There's so many things in in our world that's broken, so many things that are wrong, so many things that we could say, man, those are important issues. But again, when it comes down to the wire, what is our most desperate need in this life? I think it's clear that our most desperate need is not to fix these things, although we should. Our most desperate need is forgiveness, which is only available through Jesus Christ. Here's why that matters for you. The whole world around you offers you different things to focus on. Focus on your career. Focus on your body. Focus on your intellect. Focus on getting the right family, having this many kids, having a dog, and God forbid a cat, having all the right things that go along with life. These are the the elements of success. This is what it looks like to be successful. This is what it looks like to be happy. But if you allow yourself to believe those things and to put your ladder up against the wall of achievement and success, you're going to get to the top of the ladder and realize your ladder was leaned up against the entirely wrong wall. Why am I climbing this? What am I doing over here? See, here's the thing. When it comes down to it, the most important need that you and I have is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he came and he brought a message that was far more important than having enough cattle, having enough friends, having the right uh, clothing, having the right anything. Succeeding well at school, as important as that is, is far down the totem pole for what Jesus ultimately wants for your life. And that's forgiveness in Jesus Christ and to share that message with others. Mark chapter 2, we have a great account of Jesus doing something amazing, but what he does first is probably more amazing than that. And then how the crowd responds is devastating, devastating. This account is an important one for you to pay attention to because Jesus lays down the law like no one else does. He shows himself to be a boss, but of course, so much more than that. Join me, Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Here's the context here. And when he returned, to Capernaum after some, uh, no, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Capernaum was Jesus' home base. That either means that he was staying with Peter and Andrew, who lived in Capernaum. This is, could have been Peter's house, or this could have been his mom's house. It could have been mom and his brothers and sisters' house that he lived with. It could have been his actual host home, um, moving out of Nazareth. But doesn't matter. What we know is that this is his place of rest. This is where he spends a lot of time. This is where he spent perhaps the first thirty years of his life. We don't know. Okay, he leaves, by the way, from Capernaum because people got really, uh, started crowding him, making it impossible for him to, to do ministry. What was his ministry? Well, let me show you. His ministry, as reported here, is many were gathered together so that there was, none, uh, there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was doing what? He was preaching the word to them. Jesus' ministry was characterized not by his miracles, at least according to Mark, but by what his message was. What is his message? You just have to look back a few verses in Mark chapter 1. 
Jesus begins his ministry after he's baptized by John. Father says, this is my son. Spirit comes down. Jesus comes out of the water. Uh, Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. Shortly thereafter, Jesus comes back and he says, here's my message. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, the euangelion, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his message. Jesus says that over and over again. That's his point. That's what he's doing there. But when the crowd comes, when the crowd comes in the picture here, notice this. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. There's four guys carrying this guy. Um, there could be a crowd with them. There's four guys carrying him. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. The crowd in, in the Gospel of Mark is often an obstruction to access toward Jesus. The crowd is not, um, if you think about the Gospels, they're historical narrative with a theological purpose. Okay, historical narrative, theological purpose. Let's break that down really quick. Historical. This is a real account. Narrative. Narrative is a fancy word that means story. Historical narrative. So real life story with a theological purpose. That is, they're, they're, they're geared not to just be journalistic endeavors to say, here's how it happened, A happened, then B happened, then C happened. They're not about that. Now, the Gospels are written primarily to be historical narratives with a theological purpose. There's a driving desire behind the author to say, I want you to see a specific, access, uh, a specific uh, perspective about God, about the Gospel, about Jesus specifically. Which is why, again, this series is called Sacrifice and Service, or Service and Sacrifice, because it's all about Jesus being the servant and the sacrifice for our sins. The crowd is a character within the historical narrative. Here's how Mark views the crowd. It's not good. They are often the obstruction to Jesus, which is to say, even though they're neutral in a lot of, in a lot of respects, they're not helpful in the, accounts, uh, in the account of Mark. In fact, Jesus draws massive crowds to himself. Do you get a sense of this here? It would be like if Jesus is inside this building, the building is so stock and so packed full that no one can even get through the door because it's, it's standing room only. People are, you know, shoulder to shoulder trying to hear and see what Jesus is saying. The crowd is massive. But what you'll find out later on is that the crowd is no measure of actual success for Jesus' ministry as it relates to his preaching and teaching. The crowd is not a measure of success. There's a lot of them. But they're not a measure of success in Mark, especially in Mark. But really, the crowd constitutes outsiders who make it hard for insiders to get near Jesus. The crowd is ambivalent and, in many cases, opposed to Jesus. Jesus is preaching the word. And then you have these four guys who show up in the picture, uh, four guys who are perhaps uh, ushered by maybe, maybe a few more than that. We don't know. It just tells us there's four guys who are carrying the bed that the paralytic lay in. They couldn't get near him because of the crowd. There's the crowd obstructing. They remove the roof from above him. Now, and get this, let me just show you a, an image of what a first century Israelite house might have looked like. Now, this is a two-story, but uh, it could have been a, could have, a lot of variations in this. But here's what we do know. The top of the roof was flat. In fact, the flat roof made it possible for them to use the roof during hot summer nights. You know, house was stuffy, so they go and sleep on the roof, which meant that the roof was sturdy. Uh, the roof was, had cross beams and thatch. It was well-crafted to be an actual place to use on top of the building itself. And so this wasn't just like, you know, it wasn't a shanty. It wasn't a shack. It wasn't something uh, that someone could fall through, at least not without a lot of effort. 
And so if it was, in fact, two stories, there, there usually would have been a staircase leading up to the second story. Uh, if it weren't a staircase, there would have been inside, you know, ladders like you see here, or perhaps. Now, okay, if there is inside ladders, these four men had to go on the outside and say, how do we get this guy on the top of the roof? We can't get inside the building. We have to go on top of the building. How do we do that? These guys were genius. They had to think. They had to be critical. And not only that, they had to know where Jesus was inside the building. They're having to figure out, okay, how do we get inside? Uh, okay, that plan is broken. Okay, plan B, can we push people out of the way? No, no one's moving. Plan C, can we get them to the roof and dig inside? I don't know who thought of that, but that was the plan they went with. So they go and they get to the top of the roof there, and now they're starting to dig through the roof. Think about that. They're digging through. If someone is digging through our ceiling right now, we would notice. <laughs> people would start saying, what's going on up there? There'd be distraction. Jesus, no doubt, knew what was happening. And I think like, we'd be curious to say, okay, how did they respond to that? Mark doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't tell us. He just tells us about these four guys who loved their friend. They had faith in Jesus, and they started working on the roof to let down the bed at the paralytic lay-in. Now, again, if you're the paralyzed guy, you have no feeling below. I don't, I don't know how he's paralyzed, but um, he's being carried by his friends to a, maybe a second-story building and then being let down from a second story by his friends, hoping that they don't drop him. Terrifying accounts, but incredible the kind of friends that these guys are to this man. These are the kind of friends that you should have and the friends that you should be. Okay, so now you have this, this picture. Now, notice the last verse in the, in the first few, this first section here. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, pop quiz. Use your biblical discernment here. What's the first thing Jesus notices? Faith. He saw something, and it wasn't that he was paralyzed. He saw their faith. How did Jesus see their faith? Was he looking in their heart? Was he looking in their head? Maybe, but the account gives you no expectation of that. What Jesus is looking at is what? Their actions. Jesus is looking at what they did. That's what proved their faith. Real faith overcomes obstacles, even roofs, to get to Jesus. Their faith inspired action. In fact, Jesus, uh, Jesus had a brother named James who would eventually go on to say that you are justified by your works. And some people get all tripped up about that, saying, well, is he contradicting the apostle Paul who said you're justified by faith? No. What he's saying is that your faith demonstrates itself to be real when it acts. If I say to my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I never demonstrate that faith by, you know, rubbing her feet or buying her flowers or by, by doing tangible things for her, she has no way to know, except for my words, that I really mean that. Until my love does something, then she can know, okay, he does love me. Same thing is true here. Jesus sees their actions and says, I can tell by the fact that you're doing things, that you're uh, making your way to me, you're digging through the ceiling to get to me, that that faith is real. Faith is proven by action. And by the way, this is the first time that Mark mentions the word faith. Mark mentions the word faith not in relationship to someone's feelings. Mark mentions the word faith in relationship to what they're doing. And by the way, <laughs> this is funny to me. I don't know if it's meant to be comedic, but I think it's funny. Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, get up and walk, right? He didn't. I mean, if you're the paralyzed guy and you're going to Jesus for healing, you know this is what you're trying to do. You go to Jesus for healing and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You're like, wait a minute. That's not what I, I no, no, I, I was, no, that's not what I, no, the other thing. <laughs> give, me, give me the healing, please. He doesn't do that. Now, you and I know, of course, at the end of the story, Jesus does do that. But I'm, I'm put yourself in the, in the shoes and the sandals of the paralyzed guy and the friends. You don't know for sure if this is what they're going for. 
But I would suggest to you that perhaps they were taken aback for a second. Like, wait a minute, we're, we're looking for, uh, for, for healing, physical response here. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sees the need of the man lying in the bed and identifies his guilty conscience as being the greater need than his broken body. His guilty conscience was the greater need than his broken body. Here's the thing, guys. Today in, in our church and in our society, we are so socially oriented, which is a good thing. You know, we're, we're about social justice in all facets of life. We're, we're about, uh, you know, doing the right thing for as many people as possible. We're talking about animal rights and human rights and, and racial reconciliation and even gender, uh, gender identity rights and on and on and on it goes. Social justice is the name of the game today. That's the flavor of the week in terms of our collective existence right now. And for a lot of those, nothing wrong with that. But the problem then is if the church gets swept up into the social justice movement without recognizing that the most important thing for all of us and for our church is forgiveness, then we, get, we, we miss the point. We got the ladder on the wrong building again. We're climbing something, we're doing something, we're achieving things, but it's against the thing that doesn't matter. We want to have our ladder leaning against the fact that gospel is the thing that saves and not social justice. Jesus points to the man and says, your sins are forgiven, not your body is healed. At least not yet. Not yet. He focuses on the greatest need that the man has. For you and I, our, our focus should be much the same. Your sins are forgiven. That's the point here. In fact, point number one, we need to replicate that. In our lives, Jesus' ministry focus ought to be our lives focus. That when we're doing all that we do, we're replicating Jesus' focus on the fact that the message is paramount. The gospel is a thing that we are about. And that filters down to everything else we do. One of my favorite debates happened between two scientists. One scientist is a guy that I came to know and love because uh, not only is he intelligent and he writes scholarly papers and he's brilliant, he's also very sweet, very humble, very gentle. The other guy I knew from back when I was a kid. I watched his TV shows all the time. I loved watching this guy. I, I watched as many episodes as I could um, when our TV was working and things were great. I loved watching him all the time. You might know these guys. It's Bill Nye and Ken Ham. Ken Ham is the president of the Answers in Genesis ministry. He does the Ark and uh, the Ark Encounter uh, in Kentucky. So anyway, these guys had a debate about four or five years ago. And all throughout the debate, you have Bill Nye who's trying his best to set up a straw man to dismantle and discredit Ken Ham and to make him look like a total idiot. Um, Ken Ham took it with grace and he did, a, he did a great job. He was very gracious and humble. But one of the things I noticed about Ken Ham, if you go and watch this thing, it's a several hour long event. One of the things Ken Ham does repeatedly is he focuses not just on the scientific data that supports God creating us, which by the way, there's a million things. Just look around. I was watching a, a video the other day where I saw a bird uh, sewing a leaf above a nest so that the nest would be protected. Sewing. The bird was putting, uh, I want to know it was in a string, but it was something through a leaf connecting it to the nest. And I thought, wow, intelligent design all over that. And then Bill Nice, he's, wow, Darwinian evolution. All over. I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyway, my point. These guys debating, scholarly intelligent, but Bill Nye did not do something that Ken Ham did. Ken Ham repeatedly went back to, guess what? The gospel. He went back to the gospel. He, would, he talked about Jesus dying for sinners, which seems to be totally irrelevant to the intelligent design debate. Totally irrelevant. But Jesus died for sinners. God sent his son Jesus through, through the womb of a virgin to live and die in our place, to die on a cross for our sins, to be raised for our justification, to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he's coming back. He calls all men right now to repent and believe the gospel. This is what Ken Ham said. 
Amazing. I was so impressed by that. And that shows us something that we should replicate in Jesus' life, that we're not focused just on the here and now. It's important to make intelligent arguments. It's important to do good and godly things, but our focus should be the gospel. The gospel is what saves, not intelligent arguments. Jesus reflects his ministry priority. In fact, his entire ministry, he focuses on the message time and time again over the miracles. The message is more important than the miracles. The miracles are subservient to the message. The miracles support the message. The miracles testify to the validity of the message and the messenger. I mean, just think about all the stuff that Jesus could have done, but he didn't do. He could have floated above the crowd. He could have shot lasers from his eyes. He could have, you know, uh, the Thor thing where he does lightning from his fingertips. He could have done that to people. He could have touched the chief priest and said, I, I want you not to live any longer. Touch him on the head or, or even just speak it. You're dead. Boom. Guy falls dead. He could have done a million different things to support his ministry and his, 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 uh, his, his livelihood. He doesn't do that. In fact, considering the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, he shows a great level of restraint. If I had the power that Jesus did, I would see some of you guys yawning and getting tired and I would zap you with like caffeine or something. Like, stay awake, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know. I'd, I'd, maybe I'd make you float. Do the force choke to make you restrict your air. So you're like, oh, okay, I'm awake now. I'm like, I don't know. There's a lot of things I would do. Thankfully, I don't have that power. But my point is that Jesus shows remarkable restraint in his ministry. He doesn't do all the things he could do. But instead, what he does is rely on the message. Let me give you rapid fire text to write down. Ready? Buckle your seatbelts. Here goes. John 18, 37. Jesus says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. John 18, 37. John, uh, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. Matthew 9, 12 and 13. For the Son, uh, but when he heard it, the, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came, what reason, Jesus? To call the, uh, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come for miracles. He came to testify to the truth. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to tell us what we need to do to get right with him. He came to die in our place. The miracles are not the point. The message is all that Jesus is there for. The miracles support the point. I read an atheist blog this week, and it said, if God would do A, B, C, and D, and there was a lot of different qualifications, if God would just do this, 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 and this, I would believe him. Jesus says that the one thing that he'll give people to, to look at and see, okay, is this real? He gives us the resurrection. He gives us the resurrection. Says, okay, that's, that's, this, gen, this evil generation seeks for a sign. I'm not going to give them a sign, except for the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection from the dead. Other people, he, was, he said this. There's a, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that account? Uh, Lazarus, is go, he goes to hell, and he says, Father Abraham, please let me just go back and tell them. And he says, nope, too late. And he says, but wait a minute. Father Abraham, what if someone were to rise from the dead and then go tell my friends and my family, this is true. And I love what Abraham says. He says, they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone were to rise from the dead. The message. He points to the message. The work, the word of God. The message is important because it, again, addresses our greatest need. Jesus didn't immediately heal. Instead, he focused on rescuing the guy from what his most profound and deepest needs are. Your sins are forgiven is the phrase he uttered first. 
paramedic comes to a biker who's been recently hit by a bus. Paramedic realizes this guy's in desperate shape. He's critical condition. He's bleeding everywhere. Clearly, he's got internal bleeding. He's got his head looks cracked. His, you know, half of his, his uh, helmet is taken off. The guy's terrible condition. Laying on the floor, he says to the paramedic, please, my bike is really expensive. I see it over there. It looks like it's in good condition. Could you please go get that so no one steals it? What's the paramedic going to do? He's not going to go and get the bike. He's going to say, okay, you're clearly not thinking about this clearly. Right? You're, not, you're not understanding this. You're in critical condition. The paramedic's going to work on him. That's what Jesus is doing here. And here's the thing, guys. Let, let, me just, let me just be real with you for a minute. Let's be honest. Let's be honest, okay? Let's join me in, in a moment of honesty. Let's be, let's be refreshed by this. You and I are far too short-sighted. We are. We're far too short-sighted. We see what's in front of us, and we say, that's important, because I can see it. I can touch it. I can feel it. That's important. That, that, that's not the point, though. See, here's the thing. We, we ignore what is not only important and eternal, we ignore that for what is temporary and short-lived. We ignore that. Uh, we ignore the greater thing so we can have the, the closer thing, the thing that we can see, hear, and touch. Social causes. PETA. We want to protect animals. Greenpeace. Black Lives Matter. Me Too. Social causes. Those are all, okay, hear me on this. Some of those things are really good things. We're glad to have racial reconciliation. We're glad to protect animals and not eat them for the most part. We're glad to do things that are good for us. But when those things are divorced from the gospel, what are we doing? What does it matter if we save an animal and save an orphan and, do, and create racial reconciliation and everyone still goes to hell? What does it matter if you and I have millions of people in this room and they're happy and they're healthy and they're rich and they got shining white teeth and they have everything they ever wanted, but they never get saved. They've missed the bus. And then consequently, they've missed the point. Because the gospel is about salvation, being right with your maker. Social causes divorced from the gospel are terrible for us because the spiritual causes are far greater, far more urgent, and far more important. Like I, I love that there are social... Again, we're socially motivated right now. The most important thing, though, is not, not fixing things, not fixing social ills. By the way, let me just be honest with you for a second. I, I don't think there's ever a way to fix... Let's, let's legislate morality as best we can. But the thing that's broken in us is not the fact that guns aren't legislated more, more highly. What's broken in us is what? It's our heart. We're the problem, not the gun. You want to fix racism? Which, by the way, I heard yesterday a, a leader saying, if you're white, you're automatically a racist. Why? Because you benefit from a system that favors white-colored skin. So by definition that these leaders are now promoting, you, most of you guys in this room are racists. <laughs> and I'm not, <laughs> because you're white and I'm not. <laughs> like, that's the kind of... Silly, totally off thinking that the world is going to produce because they got the gospel all the way out there. Somewhere. That's not even important. We can't fix social ills without fixing the human heart. We are the problem. Let's just say that together. We are the problem. But we also have the solution. The message of the gospel, Jesus Christ, is what we need to have our sins forgiven, to have relationships reconciled, to have men who no longer take advantage of women in sexual assault, but rather protect them, to have people who care about their animals as they should as stewards, rather than people who just say, I don't, I don't like this animal. I want to go and kill it and torture it just for yucks. You see, all, all the programs that we're trying to institute to protect us are fruitless. 
and futile because they don't address the primary issue, the human heart, which according to Jeremiah is desperate and wicked. Who can know it? Jesus does. Black Lives Matter, let's let's do what we can. Let's preach the gospel. Pride rallies, let's do what we can. Let's preach the gospel. Me Too movement, let's do what we can. Let's preach the gospel. Do you get the point here? Do you see what I'm doing on this thing? All of these things, they're important for various reasons and for various ways. But the solution for all of the social ills that you and I encounter is forgiveness, salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the first things first, guys. And that's the ladder against the wall that we need to set up. Doesn't mean we don't care about physical health for people. In fact, you might know this, and this is something to kind of brag about, I think, for Christians anyway. Christians are responsible for a great number of hospitals, orphanages, social causes that do good for people. It's not that we don't do them. It's that we do them realizing that the intention is to promote Jesus Christ, to get people face-to-face with the gospel. Campus clubs, Jesus Christ. It's for the gospel. Your sports team, you're the star athlete because your intention is to promote Jesus Christ, to share the gospel. You want to be a doctor? Great. I hope the purpose is to heal bodies so you have an opportunity to share what their soul needs, the gospel, Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't dismiss all those real needs. In fact, here's what we see. Mark chapter 2, look at verse 6 through 11. You'll see Jesus responding to the real physical needs even as he addresses the most profound spiritual need. Here's what he does. Look at this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. Scribes are professional law people. They're lawyers of the time. Uh, They're Rob Kelly, but they're from the old times, and they're all about the biblical law, typically mosaic primarily. They're sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, the, the Jewish thing. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so that's a phenomenal right question. But I can tell you now they answer incorrectly. Right question, wrong answer. Why does he speak like this? We know why. Because of Mark chapter 1. He's got authority. He's got power. He's blaspheming. That would be true because only God can forgive sins. And that's 100% true. And in fact, the the very fact that Jesus recognized that, he jumps on it like a hawk. You know, he's telling, this is what you need to know. Yes, it's exactly right. If if I'm not not God, I am blaspheming. Look what he does. Look at he does. This is awesome. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus is reading minds, reading hearts. Why? Because Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus is reading their thoughts and intentions and saying, all right, you want to play? Let's play. He drops the gauntlet and says, okay, let, let, me, let me give you a scenario. He says in verse 9, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed guy, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? I want you to think about the answer to that question. Analyze that question for a few seconds, and just in your mind, answer that question. If you're thinking about this in one way, you'll get it wrong. Jesus is intending to look at that question from a human perspective, not the divine one. If you're thinking about this from a strictly theological position, you might say, well, to forgive sins is far harder because it requires atonement. Your sins are, are, are like scarlet. They're great. They're infinite. How could you ever atone for infinite debt against God? You can't. But Jesus isn't pointing to that right now. Jesus is pointing to the human element. I can say to all of y'all, I forgive your sins. 
But there's no way to verify that. You can't weigh it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. There's no physical way to determine whether or not you have physically been healed or rather spiritually, which is why Jesus says, which is easier. From the human perspective, can you verify that I actually heal someone? Well, yeah, you could. If I speak and he doesn't get up, then you'll know that I'm a fraud. But if I speak and he does get up, then you ought to listen to the first thing I said if the second thing I said works. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, which is easier? And of course, everyone's gonna say, well, it's easier for you to say your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus rises to the challenge. His argument is to prove his authenticity. Of course, he says, but that you may know, and, and focus on this here. Verse 10 gives you the key why he's doing this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. All of this for Jesus is about authority, the power, the license to do what he said he could do, forgive sins. And you notice Jesus refers to himself in the third person, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. I mean, if you ever hear me doing that, you need to kick me off this pulpit. (laughs) Hey, would would you please get Pastor Ron a coffee? Black, no room. No, Only someone of high mightiness could do that and pull it off. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He's claiming authority. He's showing his authority. And he's challenging their authority by saying, prove me wrong. Point number two, we need to recognize Jesus' divine authority. That's what the scribes don't do. That's what the people inevitably don't do. They saw everything. They watched it take place. And yet they still pushed their hand against him and said, no, I don't want to recognize your authority. I don't want to acknowledge it. I don't want to respect it. I don't want to respond appropriately to your authority because I don't want it. Today's day and age, we're not talking about Jesus' authority as much because really the argument for some is is even the question, (laughs) did Jesus even exist? Is Jesus liar, lunatic, Lord? Or there's a fourth option. What is it? You haven't heard this. Who said it? Legend. Good job. Look like a high school student, so I'll give it to them. High school. You got it. There's three options. We call it the trilemma. C.S. Lewis popularized this. We'll say, is Jesus, Jesus is either liar, he was crazy, lunatic, or he was actually Lord. The fourth option introduced by modern scholars and skeptics is, well, it's possible he was a L legend. Christian. How do you respond to that? Well, here's the thing. Uh, It's popular to say, did Jesus even exist in the first place? But here's the thing. There are people like this guy here on the screen. His name is Bart Ehrman. He once was a pastor, and now he's a staunch skeptic. He's an atheist. He goes around writing books. He preaches some, uh, not preaches, he teaches in North Carolina. I forget what university is over there. But he teaches and dismantles the Christian faith. People coming into his class all the time. He loves, loves undermining everything they know and love and think to be true. Even this guy, wrote an entire book demonstrating the fact that it's even silly to ask the question, did he even exist? The book's all about demonstrating the historical evidence of Jesus Christ. In fact, here's how how NPR summarizes his book, and I love this here. And and did Jesus exist? Bart Ehrman uh, builds a technical argument and shows that one of the reasons for knowing that Jesus existed is that if, and this is beautiful, if someone invented Jesus, they would not have created a Messiah who was so easily overcome. I love that. Because here's the thing, Jesus' ministry, (laughs) Jesus' ministry is that his weakness was his strength. Jesus' weakness was his strength. He relied on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He followed the directive of the Father. He submitted himself to the Father's will, becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And so when we start talking about recognizing Jesus' authority, we have to see that in humanity, in this first advent, 
As Jesus, the Son of God, he willingly submitted himself to humility. He willingly stepped down and let himself be mistreated. He willingly let this take place. So Jesus' authority, this is beautiful, and that's why Bart Ehrman, along with his allies, could say, okay, well, there's no one going to make up this weak-willed, soft Messiah. They would have a conquering Messiah, one who is perfect in every way, which is what gives credibility to the Gospels, because Jesus is presented as who he is. How do we recognize his authority? Well, first and foremost, young person, you need to believe the message. Recognize the message is true and believe it. You might say, well, I got that. Check mark the box. Pastor Red, I came to one. I know all the verses. I'm good. Jesus worked his miracles so that you would believe the message. What is the message? Jesus died for my sin, rose on the third day. He ascended to the, uh, to the right hand of God, and now he's seated in the heavenlies, ruling and reigning. What does that mean for you? That means if you believe that message, and you should, that affects everything else in your life. Everything else in your life is affected by that message if you truly believe it. For instance, who you allow yourself to be attracted to, okay? If you're a boy, you're attracted to a girl. Who you allow yourself to be attracted to, girl, if you're attracted to a boy, you're gonna say, even though I I, I am physically attracted to that girl, to that guy, I'm not gonna entertain that or endorse that because he or she is not a believer. Because I love the Lord so much, I don't wanna compromise anything in my heart in order to have this guy or this girl. If you believe the message of Jesus Christ, that means, I was just talking to somebody yesterday about this, that means the way that you treat your parents will be radically different than any, anyone else that you know who's not a believer. For instance, your parents get you really upset one day. They say something to you, they, 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 they hurt your feelings, they're, they're being unfair, they're demanding, whatever it is. Fill in the blank, you know your parents, I don't. Talk to, in yourself, talk through that scenario. If you believe the gospel, you can say, Jesus showed mercy to me, I can show mercy to my parents. Jesus, when I was his enemy, gave me grace and kindness. I can do that to my parents who are not my enemy. If I believe the gospel that Jesus died for my sin when my parents sinned against me, I can show forgiveness because God did the same thing for me. Do you see how this works? And this, this happens in every other place of your life. Your work ethic, you work hard, you do APIB, you do you know, varsity level, this, that, or the other. You do all the things that you can do. You work diligently, not because you want to show yourself to be awesome, but you want to show your savior to be that awesome. That's how it works. If you believe the gospel, you realize that your entire life no longer belongs to you, but belongs to Jesus Christ. And you now live to make his name known. You do as much as you can do. You get as famous as you can. You do as much as you can so you can make Jesus look awesome in people's lives. That's what it's about, guys. I I make no apology that I want to reach as many high school students as possible, but not because I think I'm great or I should be the one who's in the pulpit or I'm 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 the stellar guy. I want Jesus to be made known. That's what knowing the gospel means. That's what believing the message is about. You believe it, everything changes for you, even down to the socks you wear. You may not choose to wear a certain pair of socks because in your mind, they're, they're inappropriate, you know? Stan's has some good socks, but some of them, like, I could never wear that, you know? They're, they're, they're gonna make the wrong, uh, they're, they're gonna send the wrong message to people that need to hear a different message. And here's the thing, when it comes to believing and responding to Jesus' authority, you need to believe that your sins are forgiven, Let me show you how this works often for most of us. Again, we're going to have another honest moment. You sin against God. You smoke that thing. You watch that website. You do the thing after the website. You go too far with that guy or that girl. You do something you know is going to, it would be so much shame to you and your family if anyone ever found out about it. What do you normally do when that happens? You run away. You do what you're Great-grandparents did, Adam and Eve. They hide, they sow fig leaves for themselves and pretend like if I don't see God, he doesn't see me, right? I'm, I'm looking the other way. I'm gonna stop reading my Bible. I'm gonna stop going to church. I'm gonna stop doing small groups. I'm gonna stop responding to my leader's text because I don't want anyone to know. 
This is why the gospel is beautiful. Because when you realize that running to Jesus instead of away from Jesus is the answer, everything else in your life suddenly becomes clear. Instead of letting your shame and your fear and your, and, your, and your disappointment in yourself ruin you, when you run to Christ, that changes everything. Because suddenly it becomes personal. You see Jesus on the cross who's bleeding, his back flayed open for you, crown of thorns in his head. Suddenly you personalize the fact that Jesus is dying for my sin. And when you really understand that, young person, when you blow it so massively, but you understand that, you can run to him realizing that forgiveness is found fully, completely, past, present, and future in Jesus Christ. The Christian doesn't run away from this. He runs to it knowing, I need this. And if I don't get this, I'm busted. I'm in trouble. Your shame is the very thing that works against you. See, what you need to do is let that shame provoke you to run to Jesus Christ and know that he's gracious, he wants to, say, he wants to take you in, and he will forgive. You cannot outsin the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what it means to believe your sins are forgiven. And when you see that, you won't want to masturbate and watch porn and gossip and sleep around. You won't want to drink beer and get drunk. You won't want to smoke. You won't want to do that. So because you realize Jesus is worth everything in your life. Believe your sins are forgiven. And believe who he says he is. Some people say, cults often say he didn't claim to be God. We know that not to be true. Right? This is, you couldn't make it any clearer and in this chapter here, Mark chapter 2. It says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Done. Boom. This last verse here. You see something take place, which looks good on the front end, but I'll show you is difficult because it doesn't end up that way. 2.12. Paralyzed man rises and immediately picks up his bed, went out before them all so that they all were amazed and they glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The crowd was excited. Capernaum was in an uproar. Suddenly, this guy comes in and changes this dude's life by raising him from the dead and showing that he has the authority to forgive sins because he was, not raising him from the dead, uh, raising him from his paralyzed bed. Um, they're stoked about that. But here's the thing. What I think you really ought to see about this and what you really ought to get super excited about is not that Jesus performs these awesome wonders and miracles. You need to rejoice and get excited about the fact that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Do you realize how great and how much greater that is than having your body fixed? It's been a few times in my life where I'll give my kids gifts or I'll see my kids get a gift and they love the packaging and the paper more than the actual gift. It's frustrating. <laughs> Why don't you like the gift? Play with the paper and the wrapper. They'll put it in their mouths. So I try the paper. It doesn't taste that good. I'm not sure why they're doing that. But <laughs> there's a danger for us to do the same. We love the bennies of the Christian faith, and yet we don't love Christ himself. Forgiveness is our greatest gift, and we ought to recognize that for what it is. Let me show you something about this. For rejoicing that our sins are forgiven, I want to show you that, in fact, Capernaum didn't get that. Verses 1 and 12, Capernaum's in the picture here. They respond rightly, but let me give you a text to write down. Matthew eleven twenty-three 23, and 24. Matthew eleven twenty-three 23, and 24. Jesus says this about Capernaum. He says, In you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? They were proud. You will be brought down to Hades, to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom... 
It would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. It's like a mic drop moment right there. One theologian said, Nothing, in fact, seems to harden man's heart so much as to hear the gospel regularly and yet deliberately prefer the service of sin and the world. Capernaum repeatedly heard the gospel message from the preacher of preachers, the king of preachers, who rose people from their paralyzed mats, who spoke eloquently, never messed up a word. Jesus was perfect in every way possible, and yet Capernaum refused to give their lives over to Jesus in the way that he demanded. They wanted the perks. They wanted the miracles, but they didn't want the miracle of forgiveness. I just have one question for you and that young person. Is it possible that you've grown accustomed to the gifts of God while growing cold toward him? I need you to just feel this for a moment and realize that I keep on harking on this drum and it's going to go for a lot longer. It's the miracle of forgiveness, salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the thing that we're all about. The theology, awesome. We're excited to get deep in theology. But if that theology doesn't deepen the well of our love for Christ, then the theology is fruitless. I'd much rather throw the, the theology out and make sure that you understand what the salvation is for. Capernaum is a warning to all of us who would be close enough to great preaching but so far away in our hearts. Capernaum was that experience, close to Christ, close to the living one who would rule and reign someday, and they still rejected him. Never underestimate the depth and depravity of our sin. You have someone in your life that you're saying, I want to see them saved, you need to be praying for them because this goes to show you that even if the best preacher on the best day did the best miracle, that doesn't guarantee their salvation. In fact, it could do the opposite. It could harden them against that salvation because they refuse to believe point to you the fact that forgiveness is the gift of God himself. You see that text there, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, the word reconciliation is used five different times, and Paul says that that's the point. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us now the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus' work in this life was to reconcile us to himself, to bridge the gap between our sin debt and the perfect holy goodness of God. That's what we're about, True North. I asked you earlier how you'd respond to a catastrophe, right? Some kind of devastating experience. I told you about John Harper, and there's one part where uh, one of the guys that John Harper talked to was inevitably rescued. They interviewed the guy. Here's what he says. I am a survivor of the Titanic, and when I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away. But, strange to say, brought him back a little while later. And he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after, he went down. And there alone in the night, And with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. Our greatest need in this life is forgiveness, which is only available through Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian in here this morning, you have a commission. There are schools all around South Orange County that are yet waiting to have someone like you expose them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I certainly don't have all your schools here, just a handful. But if you know this truth, our most desperate need 
is not to make our lives better. It's not even to guard against the active shooter. It's not to fix the climate, although we hope to do that. The most desperate need we have, and what your friends have, is a need to be right with their maker, to know the saving truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This year, True North, we're praying for that more than ever before. We're praying a lot so that you, all of us together, can reach South Orange County for the glory of God because the the need is real. The urgency is there. Don't get lost in the APIB varsity thing. It's good. But the great thing is Jesus, the one who's ruling and reigning. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are you ready for that? Are your friends ready for that? Let's pray.